0: My my sophomore year in high school, I joined uh, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, I was Catholic, uh, and FCA wasn't really geared toward um, Catholics, but a friend invited me to come um, to this meeting, and there were some hot girls there, so I went. Um, FCA it was. I said yes. Um, And it it was a new experience. I really uh, had no idea what a Protestant even was at the time. All my buddies we're Catholic. We'd been, uh, we'd gone to the same church since we were little kids. And, uh, and I was kind of shocked to learn how many similarities there were, um, between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, I just thought it was a whole nother religion, like Buddhist or something. Um, I didn't know what they were. Um, but I was, uh, I was surprised at how, how similar I was to the Methodists and Lutherans and Baptists and such. Um, but mostly I enjoyed just hanging out with the hot Christian girls, uh, if I'm honest. Um, and then one week a teacher, um, who ran FCA, Started talking about the whole group taking a trip to see the power teams. Anybody remember the power team? If you don't remember the power team, look at that hair. The hair the hair says it all. Um <laughs> uh, they were this group of really big, muscle bound guys who would basically pump the crowd of mostly teenagers up really big, um, and then do all these weird feats of strength. Um, they would break multiple baseball bats over their knees or bend rebar over their chin or teeth and Break tons of bricks. There was this this little football player dude who put on a football helmet and ran through like six walls of ice and broke them all. Like big explosive stuff. Crazy displays of raw power and strength. And, and while they were doing it, they would talk about Jesus. Um, they'd tell their stories, how they um, had come to know Jesus, gotten saved, um, what they'd been saved from. Most of them had pretty crazy testimonies. Um, and they taught the Bible. And they would create these like metaphorical parables of breaking the chains of the enemy while they broke like literal chains with their raw strength um, in front of thousands of screaming students um, cheering them on. Um, at that time, these guys were basically everything I wanted to be. Um, they had my attention from the minute they stepped on stage looking like professional football players. And the hair, like how do you say no to the hair? Um, I think I had the same mullet back then. Um, but the real revelation for me was at the end um, when John Jacobs, the founder of Power Team, Got up and explained the gospel. And it wasn't like describing a theological reality, um, the way it had always been in the Catholic Church. Um, for the first time ever, the gospel sounded personal and real and life changing. Um, and for the first time ever, like a saving relationship with Jesus was a breath away. And it was, it was, uh, and I was the, uh, this, this was the very first time ever that I'd heard it presented that way. Um, and like the very first people, to ever hear a gospel sermon back in the book of Acts, um, as I was listening to it, I was like, what do I need to do? Um, what do I do? And so when Jacob's um, asked, you know, whoever wanted to receive Jesus, leave your seats and come down to the altar. I did not hesitate. I did not think twice. Um, I didn't ask any questions. I literally sprinted to the altar. I was the first one there um, to receive Jesus. And whew, what's that about? Um I was lit up. I was on fire for God, um, as we used to say back in the day. You guys remember that phrase? I was on fire for God. Um, I was convicted that, that I had thought that I knew Jesus, um, but had never really accepted him as my Savior uh, to be born again. So um, I was convinced that many, if not most, people who say they knew Jesus were in the same situation. They had never actually heard it. Um, and so I became an evangelist, like, overnight. Uh, my goal was to get my entire school to heaven. Um, I was going to save everyone, and I went about the work. I turned every lunchtime conversation into a talk about needing to give your life to Jesus. I, uh, I made a point to isolate anyone I could, to ask them if they knew had a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, I witnessed to teachers and staff and students and coaches. Um, I tried to start Bible studies and prayer meetings and And, uh, and it wasn't just evangelizing. I was committed to holiness. I broke up with my girlfriend because I wanted to try to restore my sexual purity. I stopped drinking and cussing and, and coarse jokes, most of the coarse jokes. Um, and best of all, I tried to get, um, everyone else committed to the same lifestyle I was, uh, I was in. Pretty soon, everyone was avoiding me. Uh, I was intolerable and, quickly learned that the life of an evangelist can be very lonely. Uh, basically, within three weeks to a month, I caved. Um, I stopped talking about Jesus as much. I started acting like my old self, and everyone breathed a deep sigh of relief. Uh, so, fast forward about three years, and God gets a hold of my life in a big way. I actually told this story when we were walking through the Abrahamic Covenant early this year. But God spoke into my life, and my entire um, plan for my life changed in a moment. Um, upon uh, everything everything I thought I was heading for. Literally everything in my world turned on a dime, um, and I walked away from everything uh, that I knew and decided to follow Jesus with my whole life. And uh, I spent about two weeks kind of soul-searching, mostly alone, um, but then I connected with uh, Esther and fell into an amazing small group, and uh, that was a little over 31 years ago. And uh, I'm still pretty much going strong, still following Jesus. And And the difference was people. Um, when I was a teenager, committed to saving my whole school, I set out to achieve my goal alone. Um, it was just me. And then three years later, I found and committed myself to a group who loved Jesus. Man, they're on it today. Um, Josh is back to teaching. so um, yeah. I found and committed myself to a group who loved Jesus just as much as I did. Uh, and for the first time, I was truly part of the church. And that made all the difference. Well, for the past two weeks, we've been talking about the reality in the book of Romans where Paul shifts from talking about the gospel's impact on the individual um, and how that same message changes and, effect, and, and affects um, groups of people. Uh, we've been talking about the corporate gathering of God's people. Um, incidentally, um, this all happens in a part of the book that we've associated with the holy place in the tabernacle. We've been talking about. We've now moved inside. Um, and this is really cool because this part of the tabernacle was filled with items that had a strong significance, um, to the, to Israel's story with God, to their, to their history and their future. Um, the showbread was symbolic of God feeding them in the wilderness and then his promise to always provide for his people. The lampstand was there and it was a symbol of God's fire by night when they were in the wilderness, but also that God has called Israel to be a light unto the nations. It was, it was, it was about their, their call. Um, and the altar of incense was symbolic of the cloud that covered um, Israel by day um, to give them shade, but it was also symbolic of the people's prayers going up to God and their, and their sacrifices. Um, basically, uh, tending these elements cost, was a, this constant reminder to the priests that went in there um, of the present uh, and future of Israel, the past, present, and future of Israel. Um, the reason this is so cool is because many theologians the way they track chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the the past, present, and future of Israel. 9 talks about Israel's past, 10 about their present from Paul's perspective, and 11 about their future. So these three chapters fit really nicely um, into this outline of, of the tabernacle. But, uh, but we're going to look at, uh, at this chapter um, in chapter 11, which is the final chapter in this kind of section before we uh, hit another big transition next week. Um, and we're going to start, we're going to do this a little bit... Uh, Backwards because the part that, that um, this chapter is most known for, um, we're going to do first, and uh, and so we're going to look at this this one um, starting with the second half of the chapter, talking about the grafting of branches. Everybody familiar with Paul talks about the Gentiles being grafted in. We're going to, we're going to start there. So let's read that. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God uh, made salvation available to the Gentiles. He wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater the blessing, uh, a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I'm saying this, I'm saying all of this, especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous and want you uh, of what you Gentiles have. So I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because a portion given as the offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of the branches uh, from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. And now you also receive the blessings God promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You were just a branch, not the root. Well, you might say those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes. But remember, these branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you did, you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He's severe toward those who disobey and kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting you will, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again, for God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God is willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you in to his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. That's a mouthful. But this is one of the most insightful passages in the Scripture because... It shines a light on so much um, biblical and church history uh, that we're going to unpack a little bit. This metaphor is pretty straightforward. Um, Paul uses a well-known practice of grafting a branch um, into a tree to explain um, how bi- the biblical narrative shifted from a primarily Jewish focus to a Gentile-centric focus. Uh, tree grafting is pretty common. Um, there's actually a famous tree in California, um that is worth looking up. You should, you should look it up. Supposedly a single tree, you can find 40 different varieties of stone fruit on one tree. It's just an experiment they did to see how much they could graft into this tree. So if you graft like a, uh, an apricot into a peach tree, that branch will go apricots, even though it's drawing its nourishment from a peach tree. It's kind of cool. Um, and they've, on this one, just to get crazy, they've grafted 40 different kinds of, Stone fruits are like plums, peaches, apricots, the so things that have the big bit in the middle. Um, Forty different flavors and varieties on one tree. Um, kind of cool. Uh, but Paul uses a, a well-known agricultural technique to explain the way um, that the natural or original people of God could be seemingly replaced with a people who didn't have a 2,000-year-old history with God at the time. People who were, in fact, worshiping like a whole Patreon of God's like 10 minutes ago. People who didn't seem like they fit the tree. Um, and tucked into this metaphor are some really important truths that um, we need to mine out here before we get to our main point for the morning. Um, the first one comes from verse 17. It says, So now you also receive the blessings God has promised Abraham to his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. As Gentiles, um, this is maybe one of the most important verses in the New Testament, simply because this one verse gives a whole new meaning to the Old Testament for us Gentiles. Um, we have this tendency to read the Old Testament just like it's the backstory of the main character. Like, Jesus is really all it's about, and the Old Testament is kind of his backstory, so we need it, but really just to inform, you know, who Jesus is. Uh, but a point of call, Paul, we aren't like just starting a new storyline. We're grafted into the root story, um, where, where we draw life and identity and nourishment, um, which just means practically that all the promises and blessings of the Old Testament are ours when we believe in Jesus. Um, we don't just start fresh in the New Testament; we're grafted into this root that goes way back. And, the, and he says the promises of Abraham, and, and which means the, the words of the prophets and the promises to Israel are ours as well, which is which is important. Um, and the only reason this works is because of a really powerful reality that's inferred in this metaphor. Um, which is the second thing we need to mind out of today's passage, and that is that the gospel story is not ultimately about us. We're not the main characters. The Bible story is not a Jewish story. It's not a Gentile story. It's not even a human story. The main character of the story is and always has been God. You could, you could cut branches out and graft branches in all day long until you have 40 different kinds of fruit, but the root would never change. The root of the story, the main character of the story would be the same. The roots and trunks of the tree is exactly the same. Jesus said it this way, I am the vine, you are the branches. You have to stay in me, connected to me, if you want to bear fruit. But this swapping, for lack of a better way of saying it, of branches, as monumental as it may seem to us, uh, because, I mean, think about this, um, in the early church, which was all Jewish at the time, um, these people had the words of Jesus that they were going to take the the, the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Um, so they had, they had no reason to believe other than that God wanted it to go to every tribe and every tongue. but the, the swapping from the, a Jewish story to a Gentile story was so jarring that even the early church like fought it. Like when, when Peter first went to Cornelius, the very first Gentile to get saved, the church was like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to a Gentile? You went to his house. That's not okay. Like they fought the gospel going to Gentiles. And these were the believers. These were the Christian Jews. So so it seems normal to us that, that we're now part of the story. But it was a big deal back then. Like even the people who really loved Jesus fought it for a while. They were like, you can't share the gospel with Gentiles. And, and it started the first like, real theological controversy. The real theological controversy was, what do we do with all these Gentiles? Do they have to act Jewish? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to, to obey the Jewish law? Like, they didn't know what to do with them because they had no context for Gentiles joining the story. So it was kind of a big deal. Um, but, uh, but as, as, as uh, as big of a deal as that was, as monumental as it was, nothing has, has ever really changed. Even though to them it was a huge shift in the story, the root was still the same. The trunk was still the same. This grafting is a great picture because it shows that nothing really changed. Which I believe informs the next thing um, we need to mind from this passage, and this is a big one. It says, But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You're just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those brands were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those brands were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. Now, it's important to remember... Here that Paul is talking about corporate groups of people in this whole passage 9, 10, and 11, he's using all plural language. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about whenever he says yes, it's the it's the Greek or you, it's the Greek word you all. They have a plural and a singular form for the word you. This is all plural language. He's mentioned um, all of these things. Um, so this is peoples, not persons. Um, this is the the plural, not singular. Um, but it's a fascinating thing is that Paul, because remember. Romans is progressive. It builds on itself. Paul established back in chapter eight, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So when he's talking about being cut off here, he's not talking about individuals being cut off because they quit believing. He's talking about people groups potentially being cut off. The fascinating thing is that Paul references the gospel um, though, are the exact same as for the individual. The individual and the collective both respond to the gospel the same, all the way down to, to saying the, the, the branches are grafted in because they believed in Christ, uh, because this, this, and he tells the collective group, don't boast. Just like he said many times to the individual, you can't boast about your salvation. Don't think too highly of yourself. Here's why I think that's important. Because I feel America has done a pretty poor job of heeding this passage. I mean, I think the American church struggles with heeding this passage, but let's just stick with the nation of America. If this passage is true and God deals with collective groups of people according to their faith in Jesus and according to his own sovereignty, and I do believe that's the case, then we don't get to brag about being founded, a country founded on godly principles. That that we have in God we trust on our money or, or that we've honored God in the past. Paul seems to be saying, if you were chosen, grafted into the story, it has nothing to do with you. You're not special. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. It's not you just doing things right. He says, but you must not brag about being grafted in. So don't think more highly of yourselves, but fear what could happen. So the idea of bragging that we're a godly nation or, or, or that we are following God seems unbiblical to me. If we're a beacon of godliness to the world, it's because God grafted us in to do that. It's an act of His grace. So the reality is, just as I said at the end of chapter 8, that we Christians should be the humblest people on the planet because because we don't take credit for our salvation. We believe it's the grace of God that saved us. I think it's the same for a nation. You don't walk around beating your chest that we're a godly nation. That's like walking around beating your chest that, that you're better than everybody else because you're a Christian. And those people drive most of us nuts. And Paul's saying it's the same for groups of people, for collective groups of people. A Christian nation should be the humblest nation on the planet. Knowing that we're here to serve God, we're here to do good. And there are several warnings in this chapter um, that I think we need to consider. It says, for if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He's severe toward those who disobey and kind to you, that's the word you all, that's the plural you, if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. It's important to remember we're talking about groups of people, not like, like the nation of Israel was cut off. Obviously not every individual because Paul's still in. So as, as we're not talking about individuals, we're talking about collective groups. So just as we built on chapter 8, you can't be separated. It's just... it's. He's not talking about the individual here. It's the corporate group that stands for God and represents His ways in the world. Israel, as a nation, was supposed to be that. They were supposed to be this light unto the nations, this beacon of hope, and the way God can work. And I believe America set out to do that. But this chapter is definitely scary when you consider that that not only do we not always represent God very well in the world, but we brag about being a Christian nation rather than moving humbly, as, even as we act in ungodly ways. So Paul's words about God having the capacity to be both kind and severe to nations, to groups of people, is a little spooky. And I believe it's the same for the church, the, the organization of the church. Not, the, not the, the Christ-believing people in the church, but the organization of the church. Especially like denominational beginnings, revivals, even, even some local churches. Most denominations begin because some people are really convicted about the truth of the Scripture. Rarely is it something petty, although sometimes it is, but rarely is it something petty. Usually a great deal of theology and discussion and writing come out of an early denominational split because people are digging. The whole reason they split is because they're digging and they want to know the truth and, and, it, and, and, and they, they take that very seriously. And it's as if God is cutting off some branches and grafting in some new ones. And a generation or two later, it happens over again because everybody gets complacent. And, and, and so a new group of people start digging, and, and it happens all over again. Revivals are the easiest place to see it. First-generation revivalists are usually really convicted by their sin. They want to be different than the world, and it, and it's, it's out of a pure heart. They notice that, that things are fading, and they want to change. They want to be different, so they, they separate themselves in some really strong ways. Even the ones that we look at now, we're like, boy, some of that's weird. It started as them just wanting to be separate from the world. It wasn't legalism at first. And then the second generation comes along. And mom and dad say, these are the things we do. And the kids say, okay, these are just the things we do. And then you get two generations down, and and there's very little conviction anymore. These are just the things we do. These are the things that were handed down to me. And so, so it's like each generation moves farther away from that core, like, like, and, and then you're back to just following rules, following the law. And one of the biggest problems the church has as it reforms and continues reforming because the reformers, that's, uh, that was their motto. The church reformed and always reforming. They said we're supposed to constantly dig and constantly grow and constantly adapt. And each time God it feels like God is trimming off branches and grafting in new thinkers and new communicators and new passionate people, those people assume that, that there's something special about them and they they boast in their accuracy, you know. and they they do the opposite of what Paul's saying. They're like, we're the ones who got it right. We're the ones who see the truth. They don't see it as as God offering grace to to create some new people to spark a new fire and spread a new revival. They suddenly put a, like, look at what we figured out. Look how special we are. And God starts trimming branches again. They assume that it's about them and not about God. Paul seems to be warning us against this. It seems to me he's saying even for a group of people even for a church let's say what matters is the gospel and God's grace and sovereignty don't brag like you have the answers and that you are the one to get it right whether it's salvation of an individual or the health of a church or the influence of a nation God is sovereign and we respond in humility we always respond in humility now all this talk about churches, denominations, nations, states, and such does bring up um, uh, one really powerful concept in this chapter that I think we um, kind of need to back up and get, um, and it reads like this. I ask then, has God rejected, this is how the, the chapter starts, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people. Whom he chose from the beginning, from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scripture says about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they've killed the prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, No, I have 7,000 others who have not bowed down to Baal. It is the same today for a few people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. Paul uses the story of Elijah in the cave as he ran from Jezebel uh, to make this case. And in this instance, I think it's important we we step back and look at that passage. Elijah has a miraculous run through the wilderness. He sits down, wrestles with his depression, basically ready to die. And I love love, uh, how he got out of that depression. Um, He took a nap. It says an angel came, he laid down, slept. When he woke up, an angel gave him food and he ate. He laid down, slept again, the angel wakes him up, gives him more food, then he got up and ran some more. Never underestimate the power of sleep and food. Like uh I uh I actually taught a class on emotional health at a at a youth conference. Um we had a breakout classes. I taught on emotional health and I started with that. I was like emotional health starts with physical health. Make sure you're getting sleep, make sure you're eating well. And and uh we went back to have church with with that, with, have youth group with that church, and this girl grabbed me in the hallway, and, uh, and she said, I went to your class. She was like, I was contemplating suicide. I went to your class, and I listened to it, and I went home, and I slept, and I ate good. I did that for about three days, and then I went to Jared and asked if he'd find me a counselor. She said, I've been in counseling since, I'm doing so much better, blah, blah, blah. And it all started with a nap and food. And I was like, I was blown away, because obviously I wasn't, uh, I had no idea who this person was. I was just teaching a class because they asked me to, you know. I was having fun teaching, talking a million miles an hour, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so, never, so anyway, none of that's in my notes. But <laughs> but Elijah takes a nap, eats some food, um, and then, then he moves on to this very special cave. Um, and then the writer shifts to poetry. It's written in Jewish poetry. We don't always hear that, but it's written in chiastic form, Um which is poetry, and, uh, and so here's how it actually reads. Uh, there he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, um, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord said. Uh, and Elijah stood there. The Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, uh, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Now, this story is told in Jewish chiastic style, like I said. And a chiasm is designed to highlight a main point. Anytime there's a chiasm in the scripture, it's to, to point the reader towards one one particular point. There's a few different structures of chiasms. They're they're all in shapes. Um, but uh, this is called a square chiasm. But the, the way that this works is every statement in one stanza is equal to a statement in the second stanza. So usually like 1A equals 2A. 1B equals 2B. And they go side by side until there's like a powerful connection. And that's what you're supposed to catch. You're supposed to catch that all these others are the same so that you get the main point. If we read Jewish poetry like a Jew would, we would see it. But we have to break it down. So here's how 1 um, uh, Kings breaks down chiastically. It says, the poet says, uh, Elijah came to the cave. That's one. Um, God asks what he's doing. That's two. He says, I'm all alone. Israel sucks and I'm all alone. That's three. Um, then there's wind, earthquake, fire. God whispers. Those are the elements of the chiasm. Um, The obvious focus is on the whisper. We all catch that. We've all heard you know, sermons on how God's not in the big stuff. He's in the whisper. Um, uh, But it's always a little weird and enigmatic the way it it happens. Um, So cave, what are you doing? I'm all alone. Three things that aren't God, a whisper that is. Um, So here's the second half of the chiasm. That's the first stanza. Here's the second stanza. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. We're at the cave. A voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? That's God asking what you're doing. Elijah says, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken the covenant with you, torn down the altars, killed every one of the prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. That's not the same thing I read last time. This is the second stanza. That's the second time he says this. The Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and travel through the wilderness of Masca. When you arrive there, anoint Hezalel to be king of Aram, anoint the grandson of Nimshi to be king of Israel, Anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, um, to replace you as prophet. There's our three things. Um, anyone who escapes, Hezalel will be killed by Jehu. Uh, anyone who sees Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Zah. Yet, I will preserve 7,000 other from in Israel who've never bowed to Baal or kissed him. That's the main point of our chiasm. This whisper we heard in stanza one is the 7,000, the secret, the quiet... The ones nobody's heard of, no one knows about. Cave. Happens in both. What are you doing? Happens in both. I'm all alone. Nobody loves me. Happens in both. Earth, wind, and fire. These two kings and a prophet. And then this mysterious 7,000 remnant. So the chiasm isn't to show the power of a whisper that God speaks in whispers. There's plenty of occasions where God does use wind, earthquake, and fire. And he is in those things. You know, a huge part of the story is a burning bush. God's speaking out of the fire. We know that God uses earth, wind, and fire. Great band also. But in, in this instance, what we're supposed to see is that these, big, these three big, brash earth, wind, fire, these aren't what God's focused on. God was in the whisper. Likewise, anointing the king isn't going to fix it. Anointing this other king isn't going to fix it. Finding a prophet to replace you isn't going to fix it. Those are not the real answer. But the whisper that Elijah heard, and if you've ever heard God speak to your heart, you get this. How can a voice that no one hear be so loud that you would change your whole life in response to it? It can only be explained by the voice of God. But in this chiasm, the voice responds to the 7,000 faithful. See, Elijah's feeling alone. That's, That's the point of the story. He feels like it's all about him. He feels like if Jezebel gets him, the work ends. It all rides on my shoulders all the other ones are dead. I'm the only one left and now she's going to kill me too and the work of God stops because there's no other prophets to push it on. In other words, he thinks this is his story. He thinks it's all about him. And, God, and God's answer to that is not only do I have a replacement for these two kings you've been prophesying to, not only do I have your replacement, Dub, but I also have, have a remnant Of 7,000 people that are still on my side, this is not about you. You could die, those other four people could die, and we'd still be okay. You are not the center of a story, Elijah. I am, is what God is saying. And this is maybe the most important and the most overlooked part of, of the God story. And there's a brutal tension in it. God has always worked through a remnant. He's always worked through this remnant. That's always been the strong part. It's a weird tension where God does something amazing with a small group of people. And that group starts to grow, starts to feel powerful in and of themselves, and then God withdraws. It happens over and over and over again. Gideon in the book of Judges has 32,000 men in his army to repel an army that is beyond counting. Scholars say probably a couple hundred thousand men in the, in the Midianite army. And God tells Gideon that he has too many men. So he sends 22,000 home. Then God, clearly making a point, sends most of those home until there's 300 left. 300 people. And God defeats the enemy. Now, And then, and then Gideon gets kind of big. Gets kind of a big head and God withdraws from him. And he does some terrible things. Sets up altars to another God. Now let's imagine any attempt to do the, the same in our world today. Like to do anything big. If you want to do anything big in our day, what's step number one? Get a lot of people on board. That's always step number one, right? Get the word out. Reach critical mass as soon as possible so that the movement can grow on its own momentum. It doesn't matter if you're growing a business, pushing a political campaign, or planting a church. Growth. Numeric growth is the metric for success that we use. How does that fit into Gideon's story? God says, if you want to do something amazing, shrink. Get smaller. Get smaller. Get get more get tighter get 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 become a remnant, and this is all through the scripture when when you talk about King David sinning. King David's great sin, what comes to mind? Somebody, Bathsheba, adultery, right? That's what we say. The whole Bathsheba story. Now, I'm not trying to downplay adultery at all, but the consequences of that sin was the death of the resultant child, and I think it set off some problems in David's family that, that he dealt with for the, for the rest of his life. This kind of chain of events of, of, of this. But, but David had another sin that we don't talk about much. Here's the consequences of that one. So the Lord sent a plague amongst Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days, totaling 70,000 people died throughout the nation. From Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, and as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said, to the death angel, stop, that's enough. And that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of, I'm not even going to try and say that, the Jebusite, when David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who sinned and done wrong. But these people are innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. That's a 70,000 people. Now again, I'm not trying to minimize adul- adultery, but th- But the consequences of this sin are brutal. What on earth did David do that was so evil? And maybe more important, why isn't this the sin that we draw to when we think of David's sin? Let's first look at what he did. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for I have done this foolish thing. What, David, what, what What did David do that was so evil? He took a head count. Now obviously there's more going on than just counting. David wanted to know the size and subsequent power of his realm. He forgot the, the size and subsequent power of Israel was 100% and always God. Always. And he lost track of that. They served a God who, whether he was a tiny band of outlaws running for their lives from Saul to that group of outlaws taking over the nation and, and ruling it, their power was still God, always God. It was never in their numbers. So David's sin was, was losing track of where the power was. Now, with 70,000 lives lost, why isn't this the sin that comes to mind? When we think about David, David sinning, why did all of our heads go to adultery and skip right over this one? In my opinion, it's because we love head counts. We don't want to draw to this one because we, lo- we love this sin. This is one of our pet sins. This is one of our favorite sins. Deep in our hearts, whether it's our bank accounts, our businesses, our military or our churches, we want to grow so big that we don't have to trust God anymore. That's what we want. We want that security of knowing I don't have to depend on God daily for survival. I don't want to have to pray, give me this day my daily bread. I want to know I got some bread for next week, too. And then hopefully, before it runs out, I get some bread for the next week, too. If you can't say amen, at least say ouch. <laughs> And please remember, I'm a hypocrite. I'm no good at this. I'm not preaching this because I've mastered it. I'm preaching it because the Bible teaches it. Jesus constantly told people that he healed, don't tell anybody. He regularly sent people home. He intentionally offended people so they would leave him. His initial advertising campaign, like if we were going to start a church and we wanted to send out like an advertising blast, like you know, we'd make it pretty. We'd make it inviting. We'd make it great. His initial advertising campaign was a dude in a fur tunic screaming repent. That guy said, I'm the one who came to, to to make the way for the Lord. I'm the opening advertising blast. Repent, you brood of vipers. And after the very Son of God finishes His earthly ministry, He has 120 people following Him. And the Holy Spirit fell on this tiny remnant who were poor, had no special connections to, to political power or military power. Just, just 120 people in a prayer meeting. And within about 300 years, they took over Rome, the greatest empire on the planet. Rome expands its kingdom over all the way to England, all the way to the end of Europe. And they took some missionaries there with them. And when Rome was later attacked by the Lombards, all the military that was in England had to come home to defend the home place. And all they leave is this tiny, small group of missionaries who were outnumbered, defenseless, in one of the most hostile and disputed lands in the world. And basically, a hundred years later, the whole island's Christian. Nothing left but these these raggedy missionaries that, that aren't military people. They're just missionaries. A hundred years later, the island's Christian. There's a really difficult tension that whenever the people of God seem lost and beaten and small, God reveals that he's had a remnant up his sleeve all along. And with that remnant, he changes the game. It happens over and over and over again. And as soon as that remnant grows and grabs for power, you know, political power, financial power, military power, God withdraws and all the abuses begin. We talked about that 120 people taking over Rome. Pretty much from then on, there's a lot of abuses that happen. As soon as that group of Christians take over Rome, you know, we get into kind of the medieval Catholic church which did some terrible things because they had power now. And man, is this a difficult tension because who doesn't want to grow, right? Who doesn't want to... to, Growth is a sign of health and vitality. But as a guy who's struggle with obesity my whole life, I can promise you not all growth is healthy growth. I can grow. I can come back probably next week bigger. Not healthy growth. But I can do it. And God seems pretty committed to healthy weight loss. And Paul calls it cutting off branches. I preached a sermon a couple years ago called Dung the Tree. There's There's this parable Jesus teaches and he says, He said there was a tree that goes like several years producing no fruit. And the owner of the vineyard comes in and says, cut it down. And the vineyard dresser says, let me have one more year. I'll prune it back. I'll cover it in dung is the the Greek word. I'll dung it is what he says. I'll cut it back. I'll dung it. And if it hasn't produced fruit next year, we'll cut it down. And the main point of that message was most of us, if our branches are being cut off, Most of us, if we're having dung dumped on us, we assume it's a bad thing. In that story, that's the grace. The alternative was cut it down. The grace is, no, don't cut it down. Let me dung it. Let me dump crap on it. That's grace. I don't want to cut it down. I love the tree. I know it can produce fruit. I just have to trim it way back. And manure it. Paul is talking about cutting off branches and grafting in other ones and and the whole thing pushes against the modern American understanding that growth is always a good thing and everything should move up and to the right. So in Paul's day, when the storyline was moving from a nation, this had been the nation of Israel story. It's moving from a nation to a small group of beat up, poor Christians who were scattered all over this persecuted church. I got to imagine Paul thought often that it would take a really small military action to wipe out the entire church. Like if God wasn't protecting it, like it would not take much to crush this thing. This is Rome we're talking about. I have to imagine that day, the theology of the remnant was really important to Paul. That God has always done something with little groups. God has always been able to move with a remnant. Because that's all the story was at the time. A remnant. I think it's important to us too. In fact, a huge part of who we are at Open Table depends on this theology. We work really hard to hold unity here. I've preached on this a lot, so I won't go through it all. But if you're interested in our stance on unity, reach out to me and... And I'll find those messages for you so you can go back and listen to them. But we did a whole series on it. But, but we work hard to, to not divide here over theological differences. We leave room for each other to wrestle and learn and even disagree and debate. All while trying to hold Jesus central. And here's why I think that's uh, possible. Here's why I think that is actually possible. Because as soon as you say, I believe in unity, the whole church... Someone's going to say, yeah, but Catholics believe this, right? Well, Methodists teach that. Or some of, these, some of these other groups teach these things, and we don't, we don't agree with that. Like, can you, can you teach that and still be okay? And some of these differences are hard to square. They're significant. But here's how I see it. Do I agree with Catholic theology? No. But do I believe God has a remnant in the Catholic Church of people who are faithful to Him? Absolutely I do. I've known some of them. I love some of them. Do I, do I believe and agree with Baptist theology entirely? No. Do I believe God has a remnant in that church? Absolutely I do. Lutherans, Nazarenes, non-denominational, we, we, can, we can get so caught up in whether the entire group has their doctrines right that we forget that, that faithful isn't a theological stance. Faithful is not a theology the, the, the first group of Christians for the first 300 years, many of them gave up their lives in terrible ways rather than reject Jesus because they were faithful. They did not have a Bible to do theology with yet. They had scattered letters. They had stories. They had testimonies. They couldn't sit there and do the theology that we do and, and that we think is, is essential to being faithful to Jesus. They couldn't do that yet. And yet they were willing to die for him I'm not going to stand in my privileged position where I've never been threatened with death and go, yeah, but they didn't believe this. I won't do it. Faithful is not a theology. I don't know where I am, Brett. (laughs) We can so easily become Elijah and lament that our group, our theological stance, our denomination is the only one getting it right. All the other ones have gone astray. They're teaching this. They're teaching that. They're letting these people marry these people. We're the only ones left, God. And we become Elijah. And I can hear God saying, I've got Catholics and Protestants of all flavors. And even some people you wouldn't even think to put in the group that are faithful to me. Stop thinking you're all that. I think the way we truly hold unity in the church is to understand that God is bigger than all the stuff that divides us. And this is His story. He's sovereign. And He will always have a remnant that stays faithful to Him. Because it's about Him. Sorting out who's who is above our pay grade. The entire point of this chapter is that God is sovereign. He can bench Israel while He grafts Someone else in it. He can graft them back in. It's on him. This is his story. And he's like, don't think this is about you. He says that. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. This is my story. I can easily graft them back in. He can add Gentiles who don't even seem like they should be part of the story. And suddenly they become part of the tree and produce fruit. He can take a small remnant of faithful followers and rock the world. Because this is his story. Paul closes this chapter and really this entire section of the tabernacle with this gorgeous declaration that I think is worth memorizing. I used to quote it all the time um, and I may get back to that. In fact, back when, when, uh, when I would like passionately debate and get like really heated in my debates back in the day, I'd do it at the drop of a hat. Um, one of my best friends, Nino, would wait until he would hear voices start to raise. And then he would quote this scripture at the top of the lungs. He would say, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdoms and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand His decisions and His ways. Like, that's how he would shut down a debate. Oh, how great are God's riches of wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand His decisions and His ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give Him advice? Who has given Him so much that He needs to pay it back? For everything comes from Him, exists by His power, and is intended for His glory. All glory to Him forever. Amen. As soon as Giuseppe and I would start getting heated, Nina would shout, Oh, how great! That's how he would do it. You knew where he was going the second we'd start yelling at each other, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. But Paul ended our time on the, on the outdoor portion of the tabernacle with that great declaration at the end of chapter 8 that so many of us know. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not this, not that, none of this stuff. Like He ends that whole section with this huge declaration. And he ends our time in the holy place where we've wrestled with, with how God sovereignly deals with corporate groups of people with another of these kind of pauses to make this huge, beautiful declaration of God's sovereignty. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand His decisions and His ways. That's how he ends talking about God's sovereignty. I started this portion of the book by saying I really don't know how to how to teach or even think about how God works with his people as a collective group. Because it's weird. You just feel like if I'm faithful, it doesn't matter what the group does. That's never been the Bible story. We talked about Achan. Achan messing up and the whole nation of Israel losing a battle because one guy sinned. It's always been this weird tension between the individual and the corporate. David sinned. 70,000 Israelites died. There's always been a weird corporate... And I don't even know really how to talk about it or, or, or teach about it. And it seems that Paul's okay with that. Seems like he's alright with not being able to understand it. Some things we're not supposed to get. So how do we respond to this? Any conversation about the remnant has this dangerous side effect of everyone listening automatically assuming they're part of the remnant. Like that's what we do. Yeah, me and the remnant. We just, we just naturally assume we're, we're in, right? In fact, this is a natural problem when we read the whole Bible. We naturally identify with the protagonist because we're Western readers. We've read enough Western literature growing up that we naturally identify with the protagonist. And, the, and, and generally in the Bible, God is the protagonist. And so we just automatically assume we're on his side, because that's what we've been doing forever. We, we identify with the protagonist. So we naturally put ourselves on God's side. We judge the wicked. We fight for what's right. We choose the wise, because that's what the protagonist is, is doing. And as Western readers, we identify with the protagonist. A great example is that, that most of us read the Gospels. We assume we'd be a disciple. Right, We put ourselves in that spot. We naturally assume we'd be on the good guy's side. Even though they were a remarkably small group of people, we assume that we wouldn't automatically defy the odds and be in in that group. That would be our company. And granted, part of it is because the other groups presented in the narrative are hard to identify with. Pharisees, Sadducees, temple leaders, maybe Roman centurions. But there's a huge unnamed character in the story that's easy to overlook. When you include Galilee, Samaria, Judea, the whole area where Jesus taught, scholars say there was probably about six million people in that, in that region at the time. We, we come in contact with about 20,000 in the Gospels between the big groups he preached to, you know, anytime there was a gathering of people, you know, we, we see maybe 20,000 of that six million people. We see, but we do see some disciples, Jewish leaders, crowds. But the people we see in the story represent less than 3% of the total. Actually, I don't even think that. I think it's 0.3% of the total. You know what the vast majority of the people were doing? Life. They weren't for or against Jesus. They were going to work. They were going grocery shopping. They were taking their kids to baseball games. They they mowed their lawns. They went to their neighbor's houses for cookouts. The vast majority of the people in the story, the unnamed multitudes, weren't good guys or bad guys. They were just too busy with their lives to care about what was going on with this itinerant preacher out in the sticks. We would not automatically have been the remnant. And assuming we would have been or, or, or are is not the purpose of this theology. The purpose of, of Paul talking about the remnant, the purpose of Elijah running into the remnant was never so Elijah could feel like the remnant. The reason that Elijah's story is so important is because he assumed that he was in and no one else was. The correction that God was giving Elijah was that was the correction was that he, you're not the remnant. I have a remnant. Like the power of the biblical doctrine of the remnant is for us to let go and trust God. For us to trust that this is his story. When you get into Elijah's story, when we first dove, dove in today, he's suicidally depressed. Kill me, God. I'm done. I'm done. When he goes into that, into that cave, he's ready to die. I challenge you this week to go read the rest of his story after that, after he leaves the cave. He left calm, cool, and collected. There's no evidence that he even felt stress for the rest of his story. He just kind of glides through the rest of the story, even keeled. This guy that was laying under a broom tree begging for death. What changed? He realized that it's not on his back. The story doesn't rely on him. The story's not on him. He realized that, that God is, well, God. Elijah's mental health was suffering from feeling like the whole thing was on his shoulders and he just wasn't having the impact he was hoping he would have. And God basically told him to chill out. This isn't on you. I've got people. I've got this taken care of. Parents, I invite you to believe that God is God. It's not on your shoulders. I know it feels like it is. I know it feels like you've either screwed up, are screwing up, or will screw up your kids. But God loves your kids, and He's God. Those who are nervous about the direction of our country, I invite you to believe that God is God. I know the world's going crazy and nothing makes sense, but, but go ahead and read about Israel in the time of Ahab and Jezebel in Elijah's day. Elijah got nervous and all worked up and, and it wasn't good for him. Because that's really what he was doing. He was doing politics. He's, he's like, man, my whole country's going to hell. They've killed the prophets. They've torn down the altars. Look at all this craziness going on. He's doing politics and it almost killed him. What healed him? Figuring out that God is God. Those who are angry at past churches or organized religion in general, I invite you to believe that God is God. No, maybe it's not like it should be. Yes, it needs revival. Yes, it gets too caught up in the wrong things at times, but do you really think God is wringing His hands, wondering what He's going to do on earth now that the church has gotten all into mega churches and stuff? I don't even know how I'm going to work with these people. No! No! Anywhere that you feel like the the whole thing is, is out of control and on your shoulders and falling apart or hopeless. Anytime hopelessness tries to sneak in, I invite you to let God be God. So the way that I'd love to respond to this passage is maybe just to memorize that simple scripture and keep it close Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible is it for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Put that in your heart. Build your worldview around this. Put it where where, where you can see it. And I promise you, your heart will fight against it. Your guts will fight against it. You'll want to understand. You'll want to know why these things happen. You'll want to figure it all out. You'll want to play God. Humans have been wanting to play God since the garden. And when you do quote this verse, God is sovereign. The whole show is in His hands and He has really strong hands. Everything we know as as Christianity today and the impact that it's had on the whole world started with 120 people in a prayer meeting. God's got this.